Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Ramez Nam. Uh, Ramez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Eric. Great to be here. So, Ramez, you are the author of uh, a sci-fi thriller series called Nexus, uh, as well as a, a, co- a couple other nonfiction books. And you spent a lot of time uh, focused on clean energy, and you spent uh, you know over a decade at uh, uh, at Microsoft. Uh, by way of introduction, when you look back at the arc of your career, what is the thread that you've kept on pulling, or perhaps put differently, looking back or looking forward? What's the question that you that you're obsessed with answering, or the insight that you're obsessed with sharing with the world? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm very much interested in a the future and b uh, empowering people. Uh, and so, a lot of my work at Microsoft was on uh, consumer software, email browsers, uh, Bing, the search engine we worked on, uh, and my novels were really about technology that. Uh, empowers people, communications technology in your brain, and sort of the fight uh, between civil liberties and government control. Uh, and climate is somewhat different than that. My interest in climate just sort of came out of a personal question of uh, what's going on in the planet and what's uh, my responsibility as a human being. But I still connect it back to caring deeply about what's coming. And I'm unusual in most climate and energy people in being relatively optimistic or more optimistic than some. And I think that comes from just my my view of history and maybe working in tech of the world has gotten mostly better decade after decade. And, and when you look at the next decade or next two decades in terms of how you want to make the biggest impact, what does that look like for you? What, 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 uh, what, what's something you're obsessed with either sharing or answering or, or solving? You know, I'm very much obsessed with uh, having an impact on the future energy and climate landscape. And there's a particular path I've chosen uh, for that, which is, you know, when looking at clean technologies, they have something a little bit akin to Moore's Law and communicating that. They have an exponential decline in cost over time, though not as fast as computing does. But communicating that to people, it's widely misunderstood or widely not appreciated. And when you communicate that to business leaders or investors in a really data-filled way, it changes their perspective on the investments they should be making. And I've seen people uh, suddenly switch when they thought, oh, my gosh, this coal plant really will start losing money after five years. This is a terrible investment. Let's talk about uh, clean energy. It's something you, you spent a lot of time thinking about and speaking about. Why did in the, in the 2000s did the clean energy bubble uh, ha- happen? Or why did it not work then? Uh, and yeah. what's changed in terms of why, why, why is now a good time to invest? And, and then we can talk about where are the opportunities. Yeah, so I'd say there's a couple things going on. One is this underappreciated phenomenon in clean energy, which is the uh, exponential price decline, uh, particularly prevalent in solar and batteries, but also somewhat in wind power and EVs. And that is, you know, it's formally characterized by every doubling of scale tends to produce a certain percent reduction in cost. And I don't think it was really viewed as uh, something that was that important or would be that long lasting then. And then two, the types of investments that were made in cleantech 1.0, which went bust, were investments in hardware. And when you invest in hardware, but the state of the art hardware has this continual price decline as a function of scale, you can just get squeezed out. And so imagine if uh, you had, you know, not one, but a hundred chip makers in the world or in the 2000s, you know, a hundred Intels and AMDs, and there was no uh, instruction set lock-in, so the sort of no network effect or platform effect, uh, and the, the startup cost was relatively small, and people invested in those startups. Well, it turns out that whoever was in the lead with the fastest chipset uh, would be the winner, or you'd have maybe a handful of winners. Nobody else 
who would be chasing that treadmill to stay as fast or as fast and cheap uh, would either, at best case, to see their margins compressed, uh, and worst case, would fall so far behind that no one would buy their product. So that's what happened, is people invested in you know, literally 200 different solar panel manufacturers, and these companies were judged on just a couple criteria, efficiency of the panel and cost per watt. And if you couldn't stay uh, right at the leading edge of price performance, you found yourself out of business. And even if you did stay there, your margins dropped over time. So it wasn't like a Facebook type network effect or zero marginal cost software company. It was really sort of a very old fashioned business model. And let's say that uh, we were, and I know you actively invest in the space, let's say we're starting a fund solely focused on this, let's say it's a $100 million fund, solely focused on this space, we're looking for big exits. What would be our sort of market map of the opportunities we'd be interested in investing in? What's either too early or too late or not a good thing to, to invest in, uh, you know, sort of subspace-wise? How, how would you make sense of the landscape? So I think of uh, my investment thesis as broken into to three elements uh, in sort of descending order of potential ROI. Number one is companies that are uh, digital or primarily digital. They can have a physical component, but there's a unique uh, software uh, element, a data virtuous cycle, or a network effect. They look like traditional tech companies. Those are the companies that they can help accelerate deployment of clean tech or efficiency or other solutions. And they have the highest return on capital, they have the shortest time on average to exit, and they have the highest likelihood of exit. Still, you invest early stage, still the majority are going to go bust, just like they would in traditional tech, uh, but they're the ones that look the most like traditional tech. Number two is what I think of as um, deployment capital or fintech in clean tech. Uh, so you look at SolarCity. I mean, SolarCity created at its peak $4 billion of, of uh, market cap. And it did so not by inventing any new tech or manufacturing any tech until Tesla bought them. What SolarCity did was change the business model and change the financial equation for customers. Before them, if you wanted solar on your roof, you'd have to shell out 25 grand to do it. And you might have a seven-year payback, but that just did not look good for most Americans. You didn't have the money or you weren't going to put it all on solar on your roof. And SolarCity came to people and said, zero down, pay us electricity to use from the solar, uh, and it, you know, it pays for itself every month, or certainly in the first year. And that just changed the model entirely. And I see that business model being replicated uh, in solar in different markets, countries around the world. I see it replicated in energy efficiency. I see it replicated in energy storage. I see it replicated even potentially in e-mobility. And so all of that that model, I think, is proven. Three is the hardest segment to invest in, but also the most important one for making uh, progress on climate and clean energy, and that's hard tech. That's the hardware. That's the scientific breakthroughs. Those are scary for the reasons I outlined about Clean Tech 1.0. I think the difference, I'd say, is when you look at it, a company like that to be investable to me can't be two or three or even five years ahead of the price performance curve of, or the, the current price of the dominant technology. It's got to be seven to 10 years ahead. That's what gives them a chance of actually getting to market at a sufficiently better price performance that they can uh, win market share and achieve scale. And, and what's for entrepreneurs out there who are looking to build uh, companies in the space, what's your sort of request for startups be, beyond the things that you, you just mentioned, uh, although that will include most of it, perhaps? Where do you want to see more people experimenting, uh, digging or sort of you know, building infrastructure for or, or trying to trying to make work? Yeah, I still think there's a great amount of opportunity for uh, digital startups, particularly in matching uh, supply and demand. Both solar and wind are variable resources. You know, they're, they're somewhat predictable, but they go up and down in volume. 
and we also have these uh, consumption, these loads, demand for electricity that can be uh, somewhat variable. So I recently invested in a company that matches uh, EV charging times and demand to when it's most convenient for the utilities, more or less in a dynamic way. I think there's more room for, uh, you know, smart home really hasn't penetrated yet to the extent of smart thermostats. We've had things like Nest. I'd say Nest has not had great penetration. So how can you make it really easy for all of the energy use inside a home, a factory, a commercial building uh, to be digitally controlled and be part of a marketplace that also includes how much uh, clean energy is on the market? Uh, I think there's other marketplaces that are possible. We see that uh, corporate uh, concerns, especially consumer brands and, of course, tech companies, really increasingly care about sourcing clean electricity for their operations. Uh, anyone from uh, Google, but also a Nike or some food brands want to position themselves as clean. Um, and how do you make it easier for them to buy clean electricity? Uh, there's a couple options that exist right now, mostly in the U.S. and Europe. It's hard to do in the rest of the world especially if you don't have the purchasing power of a Google or Facebook or Microsoft to fund a whole uh, large solar or wind plant. Um, so there's opportunities there. I think there's, if I go more by sector, I'd say there's a couple sectors that we haven't made a ton of progress on yet that have to be the, the next ones, which is industrial uh, energy use, everything from making steel to making cement. Uh, we know that there are ways to make steel without burning coal. We know that there's ways to make cement that don't involve massive carbon emissions. And that whole sector is you know, 21% of global carbon emissions. It's bigger than transport, almost as big as electricity. And so how do we uh, make it easier either on the hard tech side to do this or for somebody who's building a building to be able to say, I'm going to source uh, carbon neutral electricity or carbon neutral steel, carbon neutral cement for my commercial building and be able to articulate that as a value to my tenants or my customers. And, and lastly, an energy question. How, how do you think the space in five years uh, is going to uh, be different? I.e., what, what's too early now that in five years or maybe 10 years will be, will be more ripe for, for opportunity? Well, I'd say, I mean, if I look back five years or 10 years, uh, today, solar and wind combined are about 7% of global electricity. 10 years ago, they were just over a percent. So the market's already grown uh, by 7x plus uh, electric vehicles were basically nothing 10 years ago. Tesla was brand new. And now uh, there's $75 billion dollar market in 2019, probably a hundred billion dollar market in 2020. So just the size of these markets has grown tremendously. And I'd expect that the size of the markets will be even bigger five or 10 years. So that any play that achieves a similar level of success will just have a larger market to be part of. And I think that's also a reason that Cleantech 1.0 busted. In addition to that, I think a few new things uh, will appear. I think uh, rooftop solar is going to be more competitive in more parts of the country and more parts of the world that are sort of borderline now. Uh, I think you're seeing, there's actually a startup, I know, I'm not an investor in them, that's doing rooftop solar in uh, Norway, believe it or not, and are saving their customers money. Uh, they're hilarious. I, mean, I asked them, why Norway? They're Norwegians. Uh, so that's one answer. They said, look, we had a hypothesis that if we could make our model work in Norway, we could make it work anywhere. Uh, and they have, <laughs> to some extent. All the electricity is produced in the summer, none, none in the winter, but it still saves people money. Uh, but that's sort of a microcosm of that spreading. And then I'd say heating and cooking electrically is going to get more and more economically viable. Uh, I'd say these solutions like steel and cement are going to get more viable. I'd say things like uh, rideshare services that are all electric, maybe with different form factors as we get to autonomous vehicles, which I think are, are 
realistic, or at least plausible in the five-year, 10-year time frame? Uh, why do we need a four-seater, five-seater vehicle for ride sharing? Why don't we just use a, a smaller, cheaper a two-seater vehicle. If the autonomy itself, the sensors, the computing will plunge in cost, the, we don't need a vehicle that big when the average number of passengers is 1.1. So I think there's a whole new set of opportunities that show up in those areas. Totally. I, I want to transition to naming a, a couple authors that I know have uh, have inspired you and in, in some of your work, and I want you to tell me what what you take, what core insight do you take from from both of them. So one is Robert Wright, uh, specifically the book Non Zero, and, and the other is uh, Kevin Kelly, the books Out of Control and, and What Technology Wants. But uh, you know, feel free to mention any of the other works these people have created. Yeah, two of my heroes, uh, and I've gotten to know both of them a little bit. I've gotten to know Robert Wright a little bit, and, and Kevin's actually become a friend, which is one of the most amazing things about being an author, is when somebody whose books inspired you is suddenly uh, a friend that you have dinner with. It's just like mind-blowing, and you're still sort of pinched me, um, which is how I am whenever I'm with Kevin. Robert Wright, I think, you know, the, at the same time that Guns, Germs, and Steel came out. Robert Wright's book, Non-Zero, came out around the same time. And and Guns, Germs, and Steel pointed out a whole lot of geographic uh, and animal, you know, flora and fauna differences in the continents that uh, led to varying degrees of success. And I think Robert Wright had a much more uh, simple and elegant explanation, which is just that societies evolve over time to find more ways to have uh, more win-win interactions between people. That early on in societies, a lot of interactions really are win-lose. And certainly in the animal world, a lot are. There's win-win interactions in the animal world too, of course. But as societies get uh, more sophisticated, move from tribe to village to town to city to digital economies, and, and he sort of goes sort of into the, the very present and sort of the rise of global institutions. These are all mechanisms invented so that, you know, parties can cooperate and both gain. Um, and I think his thesis is especially relevant today, and I, I don't know if, if you're willing to take politics on this at all, but we have a president, whatever else his characteristics are, positive or negative, I would say his published work in the art of the deal and his, the trade wars he's entered into his relationship to Iran displays a win lose mentality that the U S can only win by someone else losing. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of, you know, what the point of trade is and what the point uh, of uh, making deals are. Uh, and I, I really do think we live in a win-win world, win world, and technology is one of the great fosters of these win-win uh, relationships. So that's something that you know, I, I try to evince in my personal life, but I think it's a very positive story about human cultural evolution overall. Kevin's book, and I've loved all of his books, but Out of Control is really the one that had the most influence on me. I think I was in high school when I read it, uh, which says some things. Uh, but it, Kevin made the case, and there were other books around the time, James Glick's book, Chaos, a book you know, called Complexity, were all coming out uh, and talking about how uh, bottoms-up behavior could lead to super complex uh, outcomes. Uh, Kevin really made the case that bottoms-up phenomena weren't just complex, but they were often uh, the best way to achieve various outcomes. And he really talked about decentralization and uh, autonomy at a relatively low level, whether in organizations or robotics or tech, uh, allowing you to achieve things that much bigger, much more expensive, much more centralized efforts uh, had very little chance at achieving. And, you know, I went to work uh, in tech at Microsoft after that, and people think of Microsoft probably as a monolith. But what I saw was actually quite a bottoms-up culture where a lot of stuff was delegated quite low and relatively junior people of the organization and digital contributors had, and certainly small teams, had a lot of autonomy. 
and that struck me as uh, very much uh, resonating with that. And nowadays, we talk about that in tech uh, all the time. You know, we talk about companies like uh, Valve or Spotify that push autonomy down to the individual or small uh, squads. And I just see that as having uh, tremendous advantages. Uh, and that's probably affected my worldview for my entire adult life. A couple of follow-ups from that. One is, you know, Robert Wright wrote his uh, you know, book in, I think, 2001, uh, which was a very different time. This was, you know, uh, Fukuyama's end of history. Uh, it did look like the world was, was becoming more, more win-win, more open, more, 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 more into this global brain that he writes about in the book and that you, you've explored that, that idea since what's happened is this just a blip on on the way or how do you how do you make sense of it in in light of uh in light of that work and in light of uh your work as well well i think the global economy still is very much uh win-win um and even you know with some of what's happened in the last few years globalization has just increased i was at a shipping conference of all things giving a talk there uh and you know i just saw some stats they had about the volume of international uh, shipping in trade, and it's just continued to go up and up and up. And so that means to me that at least for right now, with all this talk of deglobalization and so on, uh, globalization is alive and well. And you know, we we tend to think in simple uh, win lose uh, phenomena of uh, jobs move from America to China, or America to Mexico, uh, but the cheap goods that Americans can buy, everything from uh, cheap laptops to cheap solar power, uh, are powered by uh, this globalization phenomena. Uh, cheap clothing, cheap appliances, all of that. And so that's produced a tremendous amount of savings and, and sort of added wealth that doesn't show up in income uh, metrics uh, for Americans and Europeans. And so... I think there are blips. Uh, history is, uh, you know, certainly driven by human decisions to a certain extent. I think it that we could see a major rollback of globalization, uh, but even that, I would expect most likely to be temporary, and for the world to to get to a point of more and more integration. And it's not just trade; it's uh, science. Uh, scientific publishing used to be uh, dominated by uh, the U.S., and now we see more and more of it happening in China. Uh, it's happening in China in the English language, primarily. And so the total amount of uh, scientific knowledge is growing at probably the fastest rate it, it ever has been. And there's a, a you know fairly free flow of that between U.S., Europe, China, Japan, Korea. Uh, and I think that's good for all of us. My hack here is to basically see if we can figure out a way to give people com- uh, equity in multinationals, even if very symbolic, because even if, you know, free trade and, and immigration is is great for people in a very real sense, even it seems that more abstract to them, especially if they're losing their jobs. Um, and so if there's a way to make it more explicit, that could better align incentives in for people to favor this new global order if they see themselves in a very explicit way making money from it. What's your take on that idea? Yeah, it's interesting. I never really thought about that. Um, you know, it's possible today to go just uh, buy a, a Shanghai stock index uh, ETF, more or less, and maybe uh, more of our 401ks or whatnot should should do that. I think uh, buying directly into multinational is, is potentially quite interesting. I, you know, there was another idea I heard uh, related to U.S. politics that I thought was brilliant, which is because in the U.S. we have this increasing uh, polarization that's a lot of it is geographic. A lot of it is the urban versus rural divide with suburban sort of caught in the middle. And I saw this idea that we should have uh, an exchange year or exchange semester for every high school student, that if you're in a... Uh, urban center, you should, uh, you know, do a year in a, a rural area. And if you're in a rural area, you should do a year in a city as part of your schooling. And maybe we'll get to the point that uh, we should have a much higher percentage of our students doing exchange years in other countries. I think that would certainly broaden horizons and make it easier to to see 
uh, people in other countries is also human and part of our tribe. Totally, I, I love that idea. The, the global brain, uh, where are we in that uh, evolution and um, what, what does that look like for, for us? You go into this a little bit in, in the books, but what does it look like for us to, what, what are sort of the different phases by which we, we hook up to a global brain? Is Twitter the first step or, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Twitter is like uh, the id of the global brain. <laughs> um, you know, like a global brain uh, does not mean that it's actually uh, a conscious entity that is doing all the thinking. But I think at least we're having uh, much more uh, global transmission of ideas. But I think you also see we're having a lot more rapid uh, transmission of emotions, you know, outrage is, uh, turns out to be one of the easiest emotions to spread at least across a country and a language group now. And that's a bummer. Uh, and that's sort of something that surprised me. Uh, I would say that, uh, I, when I wrote the Nexus novels and so on, which were a lot about global transmission of ideas, or at least person to person transmission of ideas, I really expected that, uh, the, the, overwhelming effect would be positive and connecting people and feeling that people are in your in-group. Um, and I'll come back and defend that idea in a bit, but I didn't see the way that outrage and tribal identity are transmitted uh, so rapidly via this. And so I think that's a real problem that we have to find ways to address. And, and some of the ways that are defined to address are in media business models and maybe making outrage less profitable for them. I think the disaggregation of newspapers and magazines into individual articles rather than uh, whole you know, issues made it much easier for the things that were outrage laden to spread virally. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of constantly thinking about what are better business models. I think, you know, there's other phenomena like that in social media uh, why is it so satisfying to hate tweet something instead of, and why is that maybe encouraged a bit in the interface uh, rather than uh, encouraging the most constructive or thoughtful responses? That said, I want to point out uh, two things. One thing that's been happening that I think is amazing, and another thing that I see about to happen now. The thing that's been happening is Americans have on most of the axes that we cared about as axes of intolerance or prejudice become much more tolerant. There's this thing called the General Social Survey. They've been asking questions of Americans since uh, the late 60s, asking about, uh, would you have a person of this category over for dinner? Would you be okay if somebody moved next door to you who was of this category? Would you be okay if your child married someone? of this category? Would you vote for someone of this category if they were in your party and you agreed with all their views? And those categories are women, black, Hispanic, gay, Catholic, Mormon, Muslim, atheist. And the amazing thing is the answers on those questions have gone almost monotonically upwards steadily for you know, coming up on 50 years now with a dip for Muslims uh, around 9-11 that then recovered. Uh, and so I do think that some combination of cities that are uh, even more melting pots than America as a whole and uh, positive media depictions of people of these categories that humanize them uh, has had an effect. Like one simple study that was done that I thought was really neat was they looked at people who uh, had, or they, they randomized people into watching some sitcom or watching some sitcom that had uh, a gay character in it. And this was done when gay characters on sitcoms were almost all a sort of offensive stereotype. They're all like the fashion designer, limp-wristed, who is the BFF of the female lead, right? Like not the most robust or sophisticated depiction of somebody who's gay, who could be anything. Nevertheless, people who watched those sitcoms became more likely to support same-sex marriage, same-sex parenting, and so on, 
because what was a threatening concept in their mind became humanized. So I see at least media and cities as having driven more empathy over time. And we see now uh, that gay rights are spreading in other parts of the world, even into Asia. So I think that sort of thing is amazing and it gets a lot less attention than the increasing polarization around politics, uh, where maybe politics has taken a lot of our tribal energy that we no longer apply to race or gender, sexual orientation or religion uh, and apply to that. So I, I just, you know, I despair a bit about the political polarization, but there is something really good that's happening at the same time. Yeah. Robert Robert Wright in his book says that every time, you know, there's increased social complexity, we need to make moral progress to meet it. And it seems that we need a lot of, a lot of moral progress right now. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Well, I had one more thing along those lines, which is, I think the rise of real time speech translation uh, that can preserve the person's voice could have a really amazing effect. I'm not sure of this, but I think that when you can listen to someone from a different culture and hear them talking in your language fluently in their words and their voice, I think that could break down a lot of the barriers between nations and humanize people of other nations. So I don't have evidence of that yet, but I see the technology you know, on the cusp right now of being effective and, and commonplace. And I have some hope that that could, could do for nations uh, what some other things did for in-group or within-group nations. Yeah, no, I love that. You know, a lot about your, uh, your books, particularly the, the Nexus series, are, as you mentioned earlier, about civil liberties. You know, who decides what's, you know, what you put in your brain? You know, who's a human, who's not a human? I'm curious... It, if you've read The Sovereign Individual, if your work is inspired by The Sovereign Individual, because I think you know, the great conclusion is it shouldn't be governments. Have you read it? I haven't read it. Um, you know, my view is, you know, I believe in the power of government. I guess I believe that power should devolve to the lowest level at which uh, things can be effectively done. And there are some things for which there's real economies of scale or whatnot that are achieved uh, at the federal government, some things that are achieved at the state, some at local, some at uh, city, and some that should just be left to to individuals and families. And so I'd like to see as much left to individuals and families as as possible, especially choices about themselves, fundamentally. And I think the history of technology, I mean, you have to ask, technology can do awful things, technology can do great things. But overall, the story of technology is every technology gets used to do something shitty or has some accident that happens, just sort of almost without exception. But overall, the rise of technology over the last 200 years has made life tremendously better. Right. And so why is that? It's because people mostly want to use technology or to buy products and services that improve life for them, their family, their community. Totally. A couple branch points off that. So one is I, I feel like one of the major tensions we have in society is between egalitarianism and meritocracy. And it goes back to, to Jesus versus Nietzsche. Jesus, you know, the first will be last, last will be first. A lot of our uh, the moral equality of man. A lot of our ideas are, are shaped from from from, Jesus, uh, from Christianity in sort of this great inversion of uh, of the Greeks and Romans, uh, which prior to, which you know was more Nietzschean, uh, uh, you know, uh, merit, achievement, strength, evaluation of, of the strong, and condemnation of the weak. Um, instead of the, the opposite today, in some ways, uh, I'm curious. You know, the, these technologies it, it seems will only um, increase inequality, particularly when we're getting at sort of the, the ability to alter genes for, for people who have, have resources. Do you, do you see it as such? And if so, what do we do about that, if anything? And then, you know, I, I brought a question about how to reconcile egalitarianism and meritocracy, because right now one, promoting one seems like it threatens the other to the other group of people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a bigger question to answer there, but in terms of tech, I think, A, we should be on guard for that. And if that's happening, 
then that is a legitimate place for government to intervene. That hopefully intervenes in a way to lift up those who are being left behind rather than to try to uh, drag down those who are uh, making use of the tech. But I'm also not really convinced. Like we used to talk about the digital divide when the the PC was out, the internet was out, you know, 95, 96, 98, whatever it was when the, the web was getting big. There was, I remember the cover of Time magazine talking about the digital divide and the left behind. And contrary to that, I think what we've seen is that uh, digital tech, because of Moore's Law and its, you know, its uh, corollaries in bandwidth and storage and so on, tech has just gotten super cheap. And the tech that uh, teenagers in relatively poor communities have today surpasses the tech that billionaires only had uh, in, you know, decades prior. I I sometimes show uh, a slide uh, from the movie Wall Street of uh, Gordon Gecko with his uh, car phone, which was like this giant brick that actually was one of the first uh, cell phones, a Motorola Dynatac. And it was like a $5,000 phone. It'd be 10 grand in today's numbers. It had a 30 minute talk and standby time, and it took 12 hours to charge. No games, no apps, no email, no web browsing, no camera, no music, uh, versus like a $35 Android phone being used by a farmer in Bangladesh that's you know remarkably better. So, so I do think that if we see tech in these sectors have that sort of exponential price decline, I'm less worried about it being a driver of inequality. And I see rather early adopters who are rich getting a worse technology for more money and funding the R&D that gives later adopters a better tech for cheaper. I like that answer. I'm going to start using that answer. The uh, <laughs> two questions for you. One is I'm not sure if you've read Jeffrey West's scale or, or, or hear, heard of his argument basically that economic growth is, is, is unsustainable on some, on some time frame. Uh, you know, the, the mistake that Malthus and others didn't take into account was, was human innovation or our ability to innovate our way through. But still, uh, the, you know, there, there's no way to escape the exponential curves uh, that we, you know, you're going to just have to keep innovating an exponential curve until you can't uh, anymore. And it, I know you're a Pinker fan, so I'm curious if you, uh, if you have a reaction to that. Another question I have is, how much of your science is inspired by uh, sorry, your, your sci-fi is inspired by Burning Man, uh, you know, psychedelics as well as spiritual con- contemplative practices. And that, that leads me to, ask, I'm assuming it's a lot, and that leads me to ask, how much do you think that, that is knowable or unknowable uh, with science as a tool versus, versus some other tools? Yeah, good questions. Um, so I'm a fan of Jeffrey West, and I read some of his original papers, and I agree with him on a whole lot of stuff. I think his, his results are fascinating, actually, uh, but not about that uh, environmental issue or about the limitations to economic growth. Because what you see is uh, in the U.S., per capita energy use peaked in 1970 and has been dropping ever since, right? Uh, globally, there's been a decoupling of uh, most raw materials that we use from GDP. And uh, Andy McAfee, Andrew McAfee at MIT has a new book out, More from Less. I, I made like about a chapter about this in The Infinite Resource. He, he blew it out to about book length, and it makes it quite compelling, showing that uh, we are getting more economic growth, even though uh, direct materials extraction of something like 22 out of 30 uh, raw materials has peaked in total sense globally and is in decline. So we don't have to have certainly more carbon emissions. We don't have to have to have uh, more extraction of everything indefinitely to uh, generate more wealth. Uh, if you think about it, you know, uh, gaming, uh, takes away gaming at home takes away the requirement to drive to an arcade 
uh, virtual reality will someday take away some amount of commuting, <laughs> maybe. Uh, certainly, people do have work-at-home days today, which would have been impossible at times in the past. So I'm not convinced of that whatsoever. And just in the macro data, I see a, a massive decoupling of GDP that's kept on rising uh, versus uh, global carbon emissions that are rising at a much, much lower pace. And I personally expect global carbon emissions to peak uh, sometime in the coming decade, maybe close to the end of this decade, uh, and start declining moderately rapidly, not as rapidly as we would like, uh, but they'll decline even though uh, the global economy is still growing. Totally. What was the second part of that question? The, the, uh, the Burning Man, how much influence uh, Burning Man yeah. and the limits of science relative to other tools to... Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Burning Man was a huge influence on me in my early life. I started burning at uh, the age of 24 in 97. So I was still a, a young lad and it was my first real encounter with the counterculture. So it, it, it blew my mind. Other people encounter some of those same things without ever going to Burning Man, and, and that's just fine. So when I wanted to write the Nexus book and wanted to write about uh, counterculture scientists uh, who were, you know, bending the law to experiment with this technology in your brain, I imagined them as burners and people that went to burner parties and, and that sort of thing. So that was a big impact on me and certainly psychedelic culture and you know, people use certain substances for increased empathy and they're really trying to get uh, increased mind-to-mind uh, -mind communication. So I said, what if that could be literal? And that could be an Elon Musk Neuralink thing. Of course, Neuralink was quite a long time after the, the novels, but it could be a technology that I saw in scientific journals was sort of in its fledgling state that allowed uh, transmission of digital signals uh, between brains, between minds. Because uh, I thought, at a certain sense, we all live inside this three-pound lump of matter, right? All of our ideas, our emotions, our uh, spirituality, our hopes, our dreams, our fears are really just in the brain. And so if we could connect them or even just explore them more deeply, that's the ultimate frontier. Um, how much is knowable by science? I think it's a good question. I think there's a lot we don't still know about science. I think the, the normal reductive model of science uh, isn't useless in the brain. There's a whole lot more we still need to understand about individual neurons and the processes going inside of them, individual synapses and small neural circuits. Uh, but the brain is also just much more complex. It's not like uh, studying physics, where if you can do, you know, get it down to a, the smallest possible equation, you win. Uh, because the brain is literally the most complex object we've ever encountered in the universe, right? There's as many neurons in your brain as there are stars in the Milky Way. And the synapses, connections between them, there's a thousand times more of those than there are stars in the Milky Way. And so... Uh, it's going to be more like building the most complex map uh, there is, as well as having the low-level rules of, of how these things interact. Um, and so that means I think there's other approaches than just uh, traditional peer-reviewed science and randomized blind studies that help. And interestingly, I'd say that people who are meditators are part of a tradition that views itself as science. There's um, a line I put in Nexus into the mouth of uh, a neuroscience professor who's also a Buddhist monk, but I stole the line from the Dalai Lama. The, and that this was reported to me by a couple of neuroscientists who were at sort of a 40-person uh, meeting with the Dalai Lama talking about uh, neuroscience and Buddhism. Because the Dalai Lama sort of made his monks that were experienced meditators available to neuroscientists to study what's going on in their brain. And a neuroscientist at this meeting, this apocryphally, this is what was told to me, stands up and says, uh, your, your, your holiness, you know, I have a question. Uh, you say that, uh, that Buddhism is a science, because the Dalai Lama says that 
Meditation is a scientific process of studying and gaining insight into the brain. Uh, and you want us to apply our Western science to, to augment this. What if we discover in some way that uh, some part of Buddhism is wrong? And the Dalai Lama looks at him and says, well, then we'd change Buddhism. And I thought that was insane. I thought that was, you know, the most remarkable thing I've heard a religious leader ever say. So I think that, you know, the inner practices of Buddhism, uh, meditation, of yoga, of psychedelic experiences are maybe best akin to the explorers who ventured out from the shores of their home continent and went into the areas that were unmapped and brought back data about what they found. The data wasn't always perfectly clear at first. The maps were sort of not drawn to scale, but it increased our understanding of the landscape. And I think you can do the same thing for our minds and brains. Totally. Uh, would you call yourself a materialist or a naturalist or... I'm a, I'm a hardcore materialist. Like I believe that the mind is what the brain is doing. It's an emergent phenomena of the brain. It's uh, the activity happening in the brain. Uh, but that doesn't mean that subjective experience has no value. And so with, uh, with a couple of minutes remaining, I want to ask you about, uh, about climate change. Uh, where are we on the science right now? Is it, is it as bad as people say? Is it worse uh, you know, Matt Ridley, I had him on, he thinks that it's a little bit overblown, and that we're, we're unsure. Uh, and then to the extent that you do think it's, it's something urgent we need to do now, or is it a little bit like Pascal's wager, you know, it could be bad, but we might as well, uh, to, you know, change behavior. To the extent that we, 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 you think it's something along those lines, uh, do you have a novel in you to uh, help, uh, help motivate people to, to change behavior? All good questions. So I'd say in climate science, there's, uh, there's a variety of things that we do. And one is projecting how much carbon leads to what warming, right? And that's the most straightforward aspect of it. And the models there are good. Um, and Matt Ridley might belie them. Matt Ridley, I actually, I love Matt Ridley, but not on this topic. He has a history of sort of amplifying fringe voices and being very skeptical about stuff that's quite solid. Uh, there was a recent historical analysis. They took, there are 17 published climate models that have been published since 1980, that, you know, published in a traditional way with peer review and so on. They looked at those, fed them the amount of carbon that's been released between now, between then, when they were published, and now, and 14 of the 17 were basically right. 14 and 17 predicted the warming that we have today within the confidence levels of those, that those models uh, had stated. And so, and the mo models that we lay people see usually aren't the output of one model. They're ensembles. The IPCC puts all of those models together and generates its overall prediction and its uh, bell curve around that. So the, the ability to predict temperature based on uh, carbon emissions is really quite solid. The things that we have, I think, we're still developing are predictions of impacts on natural systems, what happens to forests, to ice sheets, to coral reefs, in the, to farms uh, in the face of this. And there, I'd say the science is also, like, really, like, pretty decent. Uh, it's not as solid as it is on temperature, but it's getting there. And it says some scary things, like it says at two degrees Celsius of warming, uh, we may lose 99% of coral reefs. And in fact, we're losing coral reefs that are sort of uh, near the bottom of the food chain for the fish that a billion people depend upon for food uh, at a faster rate than expected. No one really expected the coral bleaching that we've seen over the last 20 years. And then the hardest of all things to predict is what is the societal response? Is how do uh, human civilizations deal with this? Are they resilient to this? Are they fragile to this? Uh, but what we're seeing there, and it's an imprecise science because anything sociological is imprecise, what we're seeing is that, you know, 
In rich countries, maybe the direct response is we've got a lot of resilience. The U.S. produces a food surplus and so on. But in least developed countries, we see that periods of drought, periods of heavy flooding, periods of extreme heat waves can lead to potentially state failure. Darfur, the genocide in Darfur in Sudan was called the first uh, climate genocide. I'm not sure we can attribute it to climate, but it was attributed to drought. And drought is probably going to get a lot more common in that area. And so if you look at the U.S. military's assessment, it says least developed countries are the ones that are most likely uh, to see climate change and other issues like water and food push them over the edge into state failure. And that has consequences that leads to civil wars, that leads to an increase in terrorism that can come back to strike uh, Americans and Europeans. It leads to things like refugees showing up on European shores. And that, in turn, has probably helped fuel the rightward nationalist swing in European politics. So these are complicated things. I actually think in, in many ways, the ability of humans to be resilient and to help nature be resilient is underestimated, but there's some real danger there. And not to mention the danger that in the basic climate science, that there could be positive feedback loops that kick in and make temperature uh, go faster than we think. So my belief is right now we've bent the amount of uh, likely warming, the center estimate, which used to be four or five degrees Celsius of warming, we've bent that to about two and a half to three. And we, I think we have a chance to get it very close to two, 2, 2.1, 2.2, 2.3. Uh, but that's a central estimate with error bars around it. And that's still a, a level that's fairly scary. And if you look at the fires in California, you look at the fires in Australia, you would expect a lot more of both of those sorts of phenomena at that degree of warming. So, so my view is most likely we will muddle through. We will limit climate to levels that are uh, not globally catastrophic. I don't think the species is at risk. I don't think global civilization is at risk. Uh, but I do think parts of the natural world that we love could be decimated. And uh, I also think that the impact on least developed countries and ripple effects uh, from that in terms of wars popping up, in terms of refugees and migrations and ripple effects on European and U.S. politics are very plausible. That's, a, that's, that's where we'll wrap my, my guest today has been uh, Ramez. This is a fantastic episode. I, I highly recommend for our listeners to to, to read the books and uh, can't wait to see uh, Nexus on uh, in TV or in the big screen uh, at, at some point. Awesome. Thanks so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at Village Global dot VC.